Welcome to the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. OuterLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. Tonight, our focus this evening will be about brainwaves, brainwave frequencies. There are five distinctive types you should know about. Alpha, beta, gamma, delta, theta. When your brain is oscillating on either of these frequencies, expect to perceive different information. The gentleman that we are speaking with tonight is incredible. He uh, does groundbreaking research. Tony Robbins has spent a considerable amount of time with him and proudly endorses him based on his work that he does. Long story short, if you are in tune and your brain can matter and you can generate certain brainwave frequencies, you have the capability of manifesting and changing your reality in ways that go beyond your dreams. I feel this is a very empowering show, and I also feel that in addition to listening to our interview, probably want to do a little restarts on the, on this gentleman. Let us begin tonight's program. The BioCybernaut Institute was founded by an amazing gentleman, and we happen to have that gentleman on our program today. His name is Dr. James B. Hart, physicist, psychologist, psychophysiologist with over 30 years of research and clinical practice in neurofeedback brainwave enhancement. Dr. Hart, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for being with us today. I am delighted to be here with you. Thank you. Excellent. Well, there are certain people that can go on websites and spend hours on them, whether they're these entertainment fun sites that happen to discover this phenomenal website called thebiocybernaut.com, and I had the same kind of effect, so thank you. <laughs> he was awesome. There is so much groundbreaking research that you've done. Can you please talk about your research, how it got started, and where you see it's going? Because we'd like to start the show off with an easy question. Oh, sure. Well, uh, the sort of how it got started was actually what you might call an experimental accident. Um, I was a physics major, uh, a senior on campus, uh, Carnegie uh, Institute of Technology in Pittsburgh. I came out of the student union, and there was a big hand-painted sign that said, Dr. Joe Camillo will talk on brainwaves and consciousness. The time was 10 minutes hence. The building was just to my left, and I didn't have a class, so I went. It was fascinating. And uh, I had no idea that brainwaves were related to consciousness, and you could measure different states of consciousness by measuring the brainwaves. And what Dr. Kamiya had done, he, he was the pioneer in this, he showed that people could learn with brainwave feedback how to voluntarily alter their brainwaves. So they could go into states that, uh, you know, you could go to India, measure, you know, yogis in Samadhi or Satori in Japan uh, or Kundalini, and then you could come back and with the technology, train people to have those brainwaves. And I formulated the psychophysiological principle that any experience that you have, whether it's hunger or thirst or joy or love or irritation, you have that experience only when you have the right pattern of brainwaves. So I was intrigued. And when I went to the library, I read everything I could about brainwaves. And when school ended next spring in June, I got on my Triumph motorcycle and I rode out to San Francisco, and I volunteered as a research subject in Joe Camilla's lab. And it was very primitive, one electrode in the middle of the back of the head, and you know, one speaker, a three-digit score would come up every two minutes in Nixie tubes. Um, and, uh, but it was the most fascinating thing I'd ever done, and I went three days in a row, loved it. Then I went back on the fourth day wanting more, and they weren't doing any studies. So I had found out that Dr. Camilla's girlfriend, Joanne Gardner, worked in the lab. And I went to her, and I asked her if she'd put a few electrodes on me and put me in the chamber so I could play, and she did. But then she forgot I was there. And the whole morning went by, and then she went to lunch with you know nine other members of the lab crew. And it was in course 11 of a 12-course Chinese lunch that she went, oh, my God, and she remembered that there was a guy in the chamber. And so they raced back across town, rip open the door, and interrupted the late stages of a most incredible adventure. You have to understand, I was a Protestant fundamentalist physics major. 
I had never been drunk. I had never used any kind of drugs. And so all of a sudden I'm out of body. I'm flying around the universe. I'm oh, encountering wow. discorp- just encountering discorporate entities. Uh, it was a lot. So what was happening? You were, lis- were you listening to certain brainwave frequencies, and that caused you to have an out-of-body experience? Mm, no, no, but close, uh, close, but not exactly. Uh, like let's say, for feedback principle, let's say you stand in front of a mirror. The mirror does not cause you to do anything. It doesn't cause you to frown. It doesn't cause you to smile. But if you want to practice your smile, you stand in front of the mirror and you pull muscles in your face and then you get feedback on what happened. And so in this way, you can refine your smile. And so with the brainwave feedback, it's picking up, the system is picking up your brainwaves. They're just a few millionths of a volt, so they have to be amplified about 100,000 times before the computers can even read them. And then they're processed in the same way that if you put light, uh, sunlight through a prism, you get the rainbow spectrum. Well, if you put brain waves through an electronic prism, you get the spectrum, which starts at delta, which is like the red light, and then theta, which, you know, it goes up the color spectrum, and then you get alpha, and then beta, and then gamma, which would be like the ultraviolet. And so we were turning the alpha waves, Dr. Kamea was turning the alpha waves into musical sounds. And so uh, then you could hear these sounds, and they would get, it was just one speaker, so the sound would get louder if there were more alpha waves. And if you had less alpha waves, the sound would get quieter. And so inside your head, you'd be aware of what you were doing, just like if you're pulling muscles in your face to make a better smile. You're learning how to do different things inside your brain. I can't say think, because actually when you stop thinking, you're going to have more alpha waves. So this is awareness without thinking, the goal of all meditation, of course. And so as the uh, as the alpha waves get bigger, the tones get louder, and it just it was like a it was like a a, a spaceship, and I went up and up and up and and then out. First started I would feel a little light in the chair, but when I would go, if I would notice it and pay attention to it, it would go away. So I would have to learn how to let it happen without quote noticing it. And certainly not having a reaction like, you know, fear would kill it or even excitement like, oh, wow, that's cool. That would kill it. So you have to learn engaged in different. So you could just ride the alpha waves up and up and up, and then all these cool things happen. That's amazing. And you're talking <laughs> and describing the alpha waves. First off, some of the articles you sent over, I love one of the articles you sent over that said anytime an athlete is about to do something incredible, Mm-hmm. There's a surge of alpha wave activity yep. on yep. there, and so a lot of the papers you've read, it seems that alpha frequency seems to be a dominant theme. I'm wondering, why are alpha waves so important? What is it about that frequency that causes people to do things that are extraordinary? Why are they, uh, are they, less, are they inclined to do things extraordinary under delta, under beta? What makes alpha so unique from your perspective? Well, uh, each, it's like, there's gears on a car. Think of them as gears of the car. Delta would be like first gear, theta second, alpha would be third, beta would be fourth, and gamma would be fifth gear. Well, for some purposes, you've got to be in first gear. For other purposes, you want to be in third gear. And so uh, if you're, for example, in uh, deep sleep, stage three and four of sleep is characterized by delta. And in delta sleep, the levels of growth hormone in your body are the highest they are any time of the day. And so your body can repair the damage you do just by being up and moving around all day. And so it, and it usually takes people 90 minutes to hit delta for the first time. So if you sleep for 60 minutes and get up and sleep for 60 minutes and get up and sleep for 60 minutes, you might sleep eight hours, but you wouldn't have hit delta at all, and your body will pretty quickly fall apart. Now, it turns out that uh, delta is also present in coma, but it's also present in the superconscious state of uh, when you're having a kundalini awakening. And so most neurologists and physiologists don't know anything about waking delta. And if you talk to them about waking delta, they look at you like you're daft. But, uh, well, I can tell you a story there. Um, At one point, I had recorded uh, delta waves in a man who was on a three-year paid leave of absence from IBM with no requirement to go back. And the guy was, uh, you know, self-effacing, small, 
uh, in a crowd of three, you wouldn't notice him. And uh, But IBM valued him so much that they gave him a three-year leave of absence with no requirement to go back, hoping that he'd come back. Well, nothing much happened day one of the training, day two of the training. But on day three, he produced these big synchronous bursts of delta on six of his eight channels. And so I asked him what it was. He said he didn't know. So the next day, uh, we routed the six channels that had delta through the delta filters and put them out through speakers in the chamber. There were 16 speakers in this chamber. So anything that he did that involved delta, he'd get blasted because these, you know, were way bigger than the alpha waves. And so he wouldn't be able to say, when I asked him at the end of the day, what was that? He wouldn't be able to say, well, I don't know, because I'd go, well, wait a minute, what were you doing when you got blasted with those big sounds? And he goes, oh, oh, well, that was when the Kundalini was coming up. And I go, Kundalini? You have Kundalini? When do you tell me? He goes, oh, well, I didn't think you'd know what it was, and I didn't think it was that important. And so, but it turned out that he, uh, what his job was at IBM, he was a mid-level clerk in Marseille, France. And one hot summer day, he got caught in one of those six-hour traffic jams where the French blow their horns until the batteries run down and then they get out and they fight with each other. And in the peat and the cacophony, the din, he had his first ever out-of-body experience. And he's flying around over these mobs of jammed cars, swooping down, stopping fights and energetically. And to the credit of his managers at IBM, when he got back to work the next day, they recognized he was different. And so now he's got a new job. They give him a new job. Let's say they want to open a plant in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, to make, you know, a product line of IBM things. Well, normally they'd send a group, high-paid group there to survey sites, and then they'd leave, and another high-paid group would go out there and negotiate, you know, buy land, and then they'd leave, and another high-paid group would go, and they'd find a builder, and then someone would monitor so that, you know, if you specify quarter-inch steel, the builder doesn't substitute eighth-inch and so on. And then later, another highly-paid team would go, and they would, you know, start hiring people. And, and well, IBM found that all they had to do was send this one guy, and he would do everything. And he would do it under budget in money and under budget in time. So when he said he's leaving, they went, oh, no, no, you can't leave. We'll give you a leave of absence. No. We'll give you two-year leave of absence. No. We'll give you three-year leave of absence. No. Uh, three-year leave of absence, you don't have to come back. He goes, okay. And so during this three years, he comes for training. And I discover and record and later reported on the first ever scientific report of the brainwaves of Kundalini. I did this at uh, Rob Call's Winter Brain Conference. I think it was in uh, Key West one year. And so after the talk, Dave uh, 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 Gary Schwartz, a very prominent psychologist, formerly of Harvard and so on, came up to me. He's whispering in my ear. He said, you know, one time when I was at Harvard, a student came to me, and he was all excited, and he insisted that I had to measure his brainwaves. He was practicing something called kundalini yoga. So I took him down. I had access. I took him down to the EEG lab and wired him up, and he showed brainwaves very similar to what you just showed this group today. And I was freaked out because I know that it's impossible to have delta when you're awake. That's what you're taught, you know, as a neurologist and a psychologist. It's impossible. So he said, I took the polygraph records down to a buddy of mine in the neurology department. He freaked out. He went, oh, my God, don't ever let him do that on university property again. <laughs> and, but he said, but could I keep the records? I want to show it to some of my colleagues. And so he did, and Gary said, and then he promptly lost the records which is what scientists often do with anomalous data. I, I get it. What you're saying that this gentleman has exposure to delta waves, if a person has a prolonged exposure to delta waves, not just when they're sleeping, but if they are listening to um, delta metronomes, is that going to pull them into, I'll call it the superconsciousness, the uh, unconsciousness where they have access to an abundance of information that they normally would not have access to in their waking state of reality? Well, um, uh, instead of answering that directly, let me answer indirectly. First of all, I think it's dangerous to do entrainment. And when you say a metronome, that's a form of entrainment. Uh, I one time, <clears throat> there was a, a man doing um, uh, a brainwave entrainment with um, Hemisync, <clears throat> which is a technology or bio, binaural beat 
uh, and they do that at the Monroe Institute. And he had done it eight hours a day for a month, and his brain got locked in that frequency, and he was stuck. He was pretty dysfunctional. He came to me, and he did the alpha training, and he was able to break out of it. But in general, I'm concerned about, you know, ecologists are concerned about invasive species. You know, you get an African frog in a, you know, on a tropical island and it eats up all the eggs of the ground birds and they all go extinct. So, um, I'm concerned not about invasive species, but about invasive frequencies. And so I don't think it's safe to put frequencies into the brain that are not, shall we say, indigenous. Let's say that, you know, your brain is operating at, you know, 10.5 hertz and you put 10 hertz into it and lock it in there. That could do some considerable damage. I'm concerned about that. I've seen examples where, you know, that caused problems. So <clears throat> I always believe in feedback. Now, the only way I'd be willing to do entrainment is if what we were doing was we were entraining a frequency which we had just in the last half second measured as already existing in the brain. Then I would be okay with it, but otherwise not. And so it's always, well, like, for example, if you go to the gym and you, you know, you do curls, uh, weights in, in your in your arms. Now, what if you put your hand in a machine that, you know, bent your arm? Well, it might produce some elbow flexibility, but it wouldn't build muscles. And so what you want to do in most cases is you want to get feedback for whatever parameter it is you're wanting to enhance or diminish and then figure out, let your brain figure out how to do that inside itself. Now, the reason that this IBM guy was able to do this, I didn't know at the time why he could go and, you know, do all this stuff for, for IBM, but I discovered it was related to his delta waves. And I can tell that story briefly. Um, I was leading a theta training uh, at a center I had in Palo Alto, California. There were three people in training. There were four chambers. And so I got electrodes on. And while the others were doing their theta, I was also doing theta. And while doing that uh, one day, um, I had my first ever kundalini awakening. It was like this freight train of energy rushing up my spine and everything that was me identity was like pushed to the far outer edges and, you know, it just roared on. Now, I don't know how I got through the day, finished the training, and then went home to my home in San Francisco. The next day, I went to lunch at the Hong Kong restaurant on Church Street near Market with a friend of mine, and afterwards we went to the Artvark used bookstore. Well, as a kid of, like, second grade, uh, I, my father limited me to reading only two dozen books a week. He was worried about my eyes. And so, of course, I would cheat. I would go to the library after school and read unallowed books. But I had this habit of reading a lot of books. But at this time in my life, I was running two companies, a university research project, and I didn't have time to read. So bookstores were dangerous places for me. So I'm wandering through there, you know, and none of the books are priced, but they have barcodes. And so I pick up this one and that one, and this might be interesting, and I'll ask, uh, you know, how much they are. Maybe I'll get one or two. So pretty soon my arms are loaded, and I say to my friend, Tom, Tom, I said, I have to go to checkout. I, you know, And my intent was to ask the guy at the checkout how much each book was and decide whether or not to buy it. But Tom distracted me with conversation, and so the guy just rang up all the books, and then he said, well, that'll be, and he said, some amount of money. And I go, well, I wasn't actually planning to buy anyone, and I felt myself go into this strange state. There was a little shiver ran through me, and I said, but if you give them all to me for X, and I mentioned some number, I said, I'll take all of them. And then there was a shiver that went through him, and he said, okay. I gave him my credit card. He put two you know, big bags of books together. I walk out of the store. I'm standing out there, and Tom comes out after he you know, paid for his books. And he said, how did you do that? And I go, what do you mean? He said, how did you do that? And I said, Tom, I don't know what you mean. He said, that was the owner. He never gives anybody any discounts. And I saw you. He gave you all those books for less than the price of the cheapest one. How did you do that? And all of a sudden, I realized how this IBM guy was able to get all those people to be honest and efficient uh, when it maybe wasn't their nature in putting together a plant, you know, for IBM. 
and I also knew why he was running away from IBM because he had become spiritually aware enough to know that it is one definition of evil is to override someone else's will. And so if the contractor's will was to cheat and he, using a Jedi mind trick, delta waves, forced the guy to be honest, that is actually a definition of evil. And so that's why he was never going to go back to IBM, because the skill that he had that they wanted, he wasn't willing to use on people anymore. So this is why our Delta trainings are by invitation only, because we need to make sure that people have done enough deep forgiveness and ethical cleansing in the Alpha and the Theta trainings to be entrusted with the abilities of Delta. We don't want to create any Darth Vader's. That's awesome. So it seems that there, if there are people who, if you want to call them light workers, people who wanted to do a lot of great acts of compassion and really heal the world, it seems that you've got an incredible means for them to uh, strengthen themselves. This is uh, truly, it's fantastic. Yeah. So, can you please talk about the trainings? I mean, I'm looking right now. You have this, the nine levels of alpha trainings on your site and data trainings. How does a training actually work for the Biosyberon Institute? Okay, well, there's nine levels of alpha, there's also nine levels of theta, and there's nine levels of delta. And so the way a training works, uh, like it's day one, alpha one, person comes in, maybe a little excited, maybe a little nervous, they don't know, you know exactly what they're getting in for. And so we sit at a conference table and give them some instruction in brainwaves, like where do alpha waves come from? Well, it turns out they come from a structure in the brain called the thalamus. So we bring out the brain book, which has colored illustrations of different structures in the brain, and we kind of show them. At some point, we'll have little animated videos, which would be cool to watch. And so now we do it with, with books and drawings. And so we show them where the alpha waves come from and then begin to teach them the brain-machine interface because it's complex. And much of the first three days is learning how to learn because there are different aspects of the feedback. You know, the brain is a very complex structure, and its activities and its processing are beyond description in terms of complexity. So how to extract some parts of that and present it to people in ways that's useful and informative and also so that they can handle it. And so, uh, like, uh, we don't introduce all of the feedback immediately on the first day. Some of it only comes in on, on the third day as they get more used to it. So... We give them some, like, classroom discussion. Then we take them to one of the chambers. They get to sit in the chamber, and we show them what the scores look like when they come up on the screen, and we play the tones, boom, 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 for the different head sites. And, uh, you know, we show them, you know, how the intercom works and, you know, make sure they have their, you know, water glass and, the, you know, their little flashlight and the emergency call button, the box of Kleenex, just so they get comfortable. Then we bring them out back to the conference room. We measure their heads very precisely. We use the International 1020 system for electrode placement, which places electrodes proportionately to, like, the size of the head so that a child's head or a woman's head or a big man's head, you know, we, we measure them carefully so the electrodes go over the same brain structures and uh, put the electrodes on. Uh, then they go into the chambers. They, we measure some baselines, eyes open, eyes closed, and eyes closed with white noise, with peeps that they count, and then they start the feedback. The first feedback is learning to turn the alpha off or lower it. We call that suppression. And after that, there's a bathroom break, and then they come back, and then they practice increasing alpha. Now, people say, well, how do I do it? And I say, well, it's beyond words, so there's nothing that I can say in words. You know, meditation teachers have written thousands of books on how to meditate. And uh, how do you describe a state that's beyond words? Well, you can make analogies, you can do syllogisms, um, and you can, you know, use a lot of words. But in this process, you're sitting there, and, uh, you know, you're thinking, and then the tones might surge a little, maybe for a half a second. Immediately, your mind is going to jump at that and go, what's that? How do I do that? And, of course, that makes it go down. So what you have to learn to get control of is that rational analyzer part of your mind, which wants to jump on things and, quote, understand them or know them. That guy has to be, like, you know, put in, the, in, a, in a chair in the back of the room and told to be quiet 
because each of us has a 20,000 bit per second conscious processor, but we also have a 4 billion bit per second unconscious processor. And if you're trying to do the process by the 20,000 bit conscious processor, what you'll hear is a series of tones. When the control of the process gets handed over to the 4 billion bit per second unconscious processor, all of a sudden you start hearing music. The melodies of your own mind. And you're the composer, you're the performer, you're the director, you're the audience, and hopefully not the music critic. Got it. And I love Tony Robbins. And one thing I've taken away from his book, Unlimited Power, is he talked about being able to shift and go into certain states. And I've utilized this one technique that he has where at any point in time you visualize, you put yourself in a mentality when you were having a very positive experience, and then you kind of squeeze a part of your body, and you do that in order to trigger that state and that frequency. And I'm wondering if that is something that you've um, utilized at the Institute where a person can go from one state to another state by a simple gesture which triggers them into a state of being that allows them to go, say, for example, from beta frequencies to alpha frequencies. Is that possible? Is that something that you guys would uh, teach? Well, some of that is uh, like an NLP technique where you put an anchor down. And so, you know, that's it's certainly possible uh, to do that. But, you know, you have to have the state first in order to, you know, to create the anchor. And so... Um, it's 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 technique-y and it's useful, you know, if you're maybe doing work outside of the uh, chamber. Um, but uh, in the chamber, you have other techniques. And uh, do you mind if I bring Tony Robbins in for like 20 seconds? Absolutely. Hi, I'm Tony Robbins. Listen, if you are looking to improve your brain, your psyche, your ability, your emotions, your ability to really maximize your performance. Um, and you want to really dig into your brain. My dear, my dear friend, Dr. Jim Hart, and his BioCyberNet program is extraordinary. I've been through it myself. My wife, Sage, has. Members of my family have. And we found it to be truly extraordinary. But it is not for the pain at heart. Unless you're dead serious about really taking things to the next level, don't bother. We went through the Alpha program designed to maximize your ability to have great alpha waves. And it was challenging, and it was incredibly rewarding. And I'd recommend it to anybody serious about improving the quality of their lives or including the quality of their family lives as well. So check out Cybernaut, check out Dr. Jim Hart, and uh, if you do, I think you'll be really, really pleased. So good luck, God bless, and live with passion. That, wow, that's incredible. <laughs> that's a great endorsement, wow. So he did your course. Yeah, he sent that to me on, on, on a video. And so we're actually going to do um, – a, uh, we have some people who know how to do uh, Facebook stuff. So, you know, I think Tony has like 10 million followers on Facebook. And so they'll be uh, very excited to hear him, uh, you know, endorsing BioCybernet in this powerful and direct way. Well, say for example, if some people can't get to your institute or that they're, they're going to do it in the future, what are some of the benefits of kind of becoming more aware of the brainwave frequencies? What are some of the things that a person can accomplish? Because... When you go to your site, you see some things that say that you can raise your IQ by almost 12 points, you mm -hmm. can cure depression, you can have peak performance. So what are some of the benefits that you've observed that people have when they become more in tune with these frequencies? Uh, wonderful question. I've been uh, researching this in uh, several different universities, Carnegie Mellon, in Pittsburgh, University of California, San Francisco. I was at the uh, medical center for a while. I was an assistant professor in the uh, psychology department. And I've had private and federal grants and studied different aspects. Well, one of the first things that I found, and this actually triggered my federal grant, was a science paper that I published on uh, July 7, 1978, where I documented in a single-blind uh, study that uh, – if you take high-anxiety people and uh, have them increase their alpha waves, they will become low-anxiety people. In other words, personality is a function of your brainwaves. It's like an operating system. You have hardware, but you could run Windows or Unix or Linux or, you know, different uh, operating systems, DOS even. And th depending on what operating system you have loaded, your hardware functions differently. And so... 
what I was able to show, and I've done it also more recently with a group in Canada, with a group of Canadian Aboriginal people who have been so abused by the system, the residential schools, and so on, that many of them are like returning war veterans in terms of uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome. And so we documented that we could reduce psychopathology uh, with uh, the alpha training in a cohort of male and female Canadian Aboriginals. That was published in a peer-reviewed medical journal called Advances in Mind-Body Medicine in the fall of 2012. Uh, more recently, uh, published in a, a British journal, EC Psychology and Psychiatry, that we went back to these same people uh, six months after their training and studied in a survey way uh, changes in their lives economically, socially, uh, in terms of personality, enormous benefits uh, at the six-month mark. But in addition to that, 71% had dramatically improved economic situations with more sources of income, more savings, less debt. Uh, they had Many of them started or expanded a, a home business. Some that never had jobs had gotten jobs. And uh, we, with their permission, surveyed their family members, their friendship networks, and those that had jobs, their co-workers. And what we found was that the benefits of the training were showing up in people that just interacted with the people who had done the training. So we like to say that higher consciousness is contagious, or I've trademarked a word, protagious. Higher consciousness is protagious. And if you do the training, it'll get on those that are near you, and they'll be, you know, better humans in a whole variety of ways. You know, less arguing, less pushing, less shoving, more caring, you know, more kindness, you know, things like that. And so uh, we've also documented, as you noted, uh, an almost 12-point increase in IQ that's stable at least a month out, I mean, at least a year out stable. Uh, we've documented a 50% increase in creativity. And more recently, and this isn't even published yet, uh, data is just uh, out of the computers, we've documented an increase in EQ, or emotional intelligence, uh, of about 10 points. It's actually about almost 11 points in men and almost 10 points in women. It's the only result I've ever found where there was a gender difference. So men are increasing their emotional intelligence slightly more than women as a result of the training. And so the importance of this is that the IQ has been shown to account for 10, maybe maximum 20% of a person's success in life. But EQ, or emotional intelligence, accounts for between 60 and 70% of your success in life. You can be, you know, a genius, but if you can't relate to other humans, you know, you probably won't even be able to work at a job. Uh, you know, because if you're geeky enough and, you know, unkind or rude or just don't observe social customs. And so well, this is going to be published soon, but uh, uh, a roughly 10-point increase in emotional intelligence. And according to the book, Emotional Intelligence 2.0, every 10-point increase you have in EQ will net you more than $13,000 additional income. Wow. And, Definitely want to take note of that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dr. Hart, you, I was just um, thought just kind of popped in my head. I was thinking about it. Is there a way to measure the density of the brainwave frequencies? And the reason why I'm asking is because I'm curious to know if certain brainwave frequencies are associated with celestial or higher vibrational frequencies. And I'm wondering because if if people are saying that you know research is that alpha is so powerful, it can do so many great things, and delta can be so powerful, does it carry a measure of energy or frequency that will naturally pull a person into a state of compassion, of kindness, or on a frequency similar to that of unconditional love? Well, you can in fact uh, experience unconditional love in alpha and also in theta. Um, we had a man recently uh, br break into huge theta all across the head, front, back, sides, you know, top. Um, and he was out of body. He was looking back on planet Earth and loving it and loving every blade of grass and every creature that, you know, uh, crawled or 
ran or jumped or swam or flew. And it was, in fact, an amazing, amazing experience. And there are the brainwaves to match. Now, the same thing can happen in very high alpha states. And you see, the word density uh, has sort of a checkered history. Density in terms of matter, like, for example, gold is uh, more dense than aluminum. In other words, a, a cubic inch of aluminum is going to weigh less than a cubic inch of gold. Now, in the early years, when people were looking at brainwaves written out on polygraph paper, um, if there was, in a say, in a minute, there were uh, little bursts of alpha that were like 10 seconds apart, then they would say, well, there was low density of alpha. If, in fact their alpha waves were more or less continuous across the minute as they are as they are for example in advanced zen uh, or advanced yoga then they would say there was high density so it's an appropriation of a word from material science to in this case brain science uh and so there we were talking there they were talking that's not used much anymore that term but uh, the density of alpha would refer to uh how continuous it was didn't necessarily mean it was big or small but how continuous it was and so uh, theta waves for example are necessary and useful for uh, contacting information out of the akashic records and there's a number of wonderful stories in the annals of creativity of how people would go into theta to come forth with inventions. Kekulé's discovery of the benzene ring is one. Well, Thomas Edison, the inventor of the electric light bulb, had a technique where he would uh, lie down in a recliner chair, hold a big steel ball bearing in each hand, drape his arms over the edge of the chair, and underneath each hand, he would have a metal pie plate. And then, while thinking of something he was trying to invent, he would try to fall asleep. Well, you know, as soon as he hits uh, the first you know, stage one of sleep and has a little theta, he's going to lose his grip, and the balls, the steel ball bearings are going to fall into the pie pans, make a clattering din, wake him up. He'd grab his pencil, and he'd write down whatever little piece of information he'd got, and then he'd do it again. And this technique allowed him to come up with more than 1,000 patents. He did this before people even knew there were brainwaves, and certainly it didn't take any technology you know, to do it. But when we look back with the eyes of technologists, brainwave technologists, we oh, Thomas Edison had developed a technique for creating theta waves, and he was using it to pull information out of the Akashic Records, an energetic database of all knowledge that is, was, and some would say will be, and uh, use that to come up with more than a thousand patents. Very practical application of a brainwave state. You know, you mentioned binaural beats before about how um, I just want to clarify something. If a person is listening to binaural beats, you say that it's uh, that could be a negative thing because they're uh, pulling into their consciousness um, waves that are unfamiliar to them that they need to generate those waves without the processing them externally. I just want to, I just want to clarify that. Um, the, the, the situation that I saw uh, where somebody was using in uh, the the hemisync a device that I think he got from the Monroe Institute, uh, binaural beats, and he had, you know, you, you could say, well, he overdid it, eight hours a day for a month. Uh, okay, but you could do brainwave feedback eight hours a day for a month, and you wouldn't get locked in any state because you have the freedom to go up or down. And uh, so uh, my concern about entrainment is invasive frequencies. Now, many people, you know, will do drumming. And if you sit around drumming, and you know, it's six cycles a second, uh, you know, for hours, you know, it may put you into a theta state. And, you know, in, in, in cultures where they didn't have brainwave technology, you know, people are always looking for ways to change state. I mean, most primitive cultures found a way to ferment alcohol out of, you know, whether it was bananas or papayas or, you know, rye or, you know, whatever. How do people access an alpha state or a theta state naturally, from your perspective? What kind of activities can they do naturally that will allow them to go in there without having to listen to anything external, that they can just go and they'll become naturally a part of it? Good good question. Well, first of all, um, most people have 
at least bits and pieces of alpha, maybe what we could call low density, in other words, where the alpha shows up only sporadically. Um, but the thing is that you want to increase the power, you want to you want to increase the frequency. Uh, I mean, you want to increase the continuity, which uh, they used to call the density. So you want bigger power, you want greater continuity, and then you want to get uh, the alpha occurring simultaneously at different places on your head. We call that hemicoherence. Now, true coherence requires that the waves actually be at the same frequency and in phase. That's much harder to accomplish. But just getting alpha going simultaneously in your left brain and your right brain is a huge accomplishment, and it literally will help you get your head together rather than having you know alpha in one hemisphere and not in the other, which is all too common. So now there are breathing exercises that are helpful uh, for doing this. One of them um, involves it's a three-phase breathing exercise where you go inhale, hold, and exhale. Two account could be ten. You do it eyes closed, breathe through your nose, and you maybe do you know ten or twelve of those, uh, and then maybe from that go into meditation. Slow breathing with attention to your breathing is also very helpful, um, and uh, these things will take you out of your thinking mind. One of the benefits of a mantra, now you could say, you know, God, 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 or you could say table, 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 and to the extent that you fill your mind with that word or phrase, you are pushing out distracting thoughts, and so that will allow the alpha to come in stronger and longer and so these are things that anybody can do anytime uh, and uh, I highly recommend it. Dr. Hart, one of my um, greatest teachers used to tell me about, uh, used to teach about the power of the word. When you say you're going to do something and you do it, you strengthen the power of your word and I'm wondering if a person does an affirmation where they always say and do what they say, does that have any bearing on the strength of their brain frequencies? And are there any frequencies that you've come across where a person is more inclined to be able to manifest into reality quicker things that they are currently thinking of? Well, the most powerful state for altering reality that I know of is Delta. Uh, at one point, when I studied uh, Celtic magic, one of my teachers was an archdruid, and he said that the most powerful state for manifesting is what he called innocent joy. So obviously, well, let's let's deconstruct innocence. Okay, well, in innocence, um, you're not harboring any you know ill will toward anyone or anything. Um, you don't have any secondary agendas going. You certainly don't have any doubts. You can't be in a state of innocence and doubting anything. Um, and so if you deconstruct uh, the word innocent, you're, you're going to come up with probably uh, some pure brainwave states. Uh, and then joy, obviously, that's going to be uh, a state uh, as alpha goes. Well, at the higher levels, alpha is an euphoric high energy state. So you naturally go into joy as you go into states of higher alpha or states of higher theta. Now in delta, uh, which you know most neurologists would say you can't have delta when you're you know awake, when you're conscious, um, in delta uh, it's pretty much emotionless. And so uh, you know you, you there's awareness, but emotions are you know it's like if you're if if you uh, dive into a swimming pool and you go down uh, to the bottom and you know you hold on to something down there so you don't float up and you look up and you can see the waves on the surface and the sunlight you know scattering that is like if you're in delta and you're looking up at a higher level of consciousness which could be theta or alpha where the emotions are those waves do not touch you when you're down on the bottom of the pool and emotions do not touch you when you're in Delta. When you, if a person is um, going to become more aware of, let's say, uh, be, being aware that they are part of uh, the source or being 
more aware of having a multidimensional existence and becoming more aware of perceptions beyond the five senses. Is that frequency also associated with delta as well? Well, if that can happen in delta, theta, or alpha, uh, one of the things that I didn't get to when I was talking about uh, reducing anxiety you know, by raising alpha and re- reducing various kinds of psychopathology is that some people study multiple personalities. You know, there's some books like Three Faces of Eve or Sybil. And one of the things they found is that um, the, let's say you have a body, let's say it's a female body, and it's inhabited by Linda, Jane, and Bill. These are the three personalities. Well, it turns out that when Linda is inhabiting that body, that body is highly allergic to oranges. You can't drink orange juice. If they handle an orange, they break out in red, itchy hives. Okay, that's when Linda's in the body. But if Jane or Bill are inhabiting the body, that body can drink tons of orange juice. It can pick oranges. It can peel oranges. And so uh, a lot of what we think is hardwired physiology is not. It's a function of the brainwaves. And so when people would study multiples, they'd put electrodes on and just sort of sit back and wait. And when Linda would change to Jane, in that moment, there would be massive and profound changes in the brainwaves. And so from both directions, I am doing learning to change brainwaves and seeing how it alters personality beneficially. And the people studying multiples where personality spontaneously shifts finds that it's accompanied by or maybe caused by spontaneous changes in the brainwaves. So in both of those examples, the brainwaves might even be considered to be determinants of the personality. And when you can change your brainwaves, you change your personality. Well, you've probably had, and, and all your listeners have probably had, the experience of getting really tired and then getting a little crabby or irritable. Well, guess what happens? When you get tired, your alpha waves diminish, and you don't have access to that enthusiasm and joy and warmth and lovingness and friendliness that are conveyed by higher levels of alpha. This is... I've gone through periods of my life, especially earlier, where I would stay up sometimes two or three days in a row because I was really passionate about work and I was really into working. But I always found that when I was at that frequency, was at that pace where I was just about to fall asleep and I was so tired, I was getting information that I wasn't getting uh, another any other state. It's just like my body was pushing itself to the test. I was kind of like on the edge between this world and the dream world. I don't know where that was or what, it, what why it was significant. But I knew I liked being there. Is that, that's what you, were in, you were in Theta. And in Theta, you can access the Akashic Records and pull in information not known to you and maybe not known to any human in your time period. That's pretty amazing. What, what, was your, what have been some of your most profound experiences? I mean, you talked earlier about how you floated out of your body and you saw the Earth. What have been some of your most amazing experiences in all your years of research? Well, certainly one of the personal things that was most powerful was my first kundalini awakening where I'm lying there like minding my own business in this recliner chair uh, you know in uh, doing theta and all of a sudden there's this enormous eruption of energy in the base of my spine and it goes shooting up my spine the, the metaphor would be like have you ever seen firemen with a high pressure fire hose it takes three or four of them to hold it and if they happen to lose it whips around you know well this was like the, a fire hose of energy pouring up through me and anything that was me identity whatever memories were pushed to like the far outer edges while this huge energy rushed through and i was profoundly altered uh, by that experience. Uh, Certainly, there have been experiences of unconditional love, profound love and joy happening in very high alpha states. Uh, We even do a thing that we call the high-tech decision-making tool. Let's say somebody is trying to decide which of five different jobs to accept. Well, one thing they can do is they can uh, go into the chamber and if they're doing alpha feedback, and they can, in their mind, accept that job and step into it and begin operating, knowing you know what they'd be doing, what their days would be like, and noting where their alpha scores would be running. Then after a few two-minute epics and a set of scores each time, they would step out of that job, and in their mind, they would accept the next job. 
and jump into that and start operating and noting where their scores would go. And so at the end, when they tried all of them, they would have then a rank ordering of how much alpha waves each one of the jobs gave them. The guy who invented this technique uh, was a, a very gifted uh, electrical engineer and a Stanford MBA uh, graduate, and he would use it to pick his next job. And uh, by using this technique, because he felt that if he got the highest alpha on just thinking about or actually being in that job, he'd be more creative, he'd have more fun, he'd make more money. And so he, he used this uh, technique uh, like four or five times, and his career just went up like a rocket. And when he reached $50 million in net worth, he said, that's enough, and he retired. And he went to study, you know, to get a degree in astrophysics. But he couldn't, you know, limit himself to that. And so then he went back and he ran a couple of hundred million dollar uh, venture capital funds. Uh, again, using his alpha waves to guide him into what direction. I've, I've had guys use it to, they were dating three women, and use it to figure out which woman to marry. Wow. <laughs> That's that's pretty uh, that's pretty awesome, <laughs> Doctor James Hart. I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Really fascinating, riveting interview, and I think that there's so much more that people can learn about you. So, to learn more about you by going to your website at biocybernot.com. Doctor Hart, thank you so much for your time today, sir. Thank you so much. It's been a delight hanging out with you. Okay, everyone, that concludes today's edition of the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Special thanks to our incredible guest, Dr. James Hart. And special thanks as always to our virtues, Ms. Carrie O'Connor, Ms. Lisa Kaza, and Ms. Constance Stellis. To learn more about the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show, please go to our website at OuterLimitsRadio.com. Till the next time we meet, my friends, wishing upon you an abundance of peace. Love and beers. Take good care and thank you so much for listening. Want to be heard or seen in front of millions of people? Want to be an expert on TV or radio? Goldman McCormick PR is a New York City-based public relations agency that specializes in traditional and social media placement for law, finance, media, and corporate-based clients. Goldman McCormick PR also are specialists in website development, radio show creation, press conferences, media training, and so much more. Check out GoldmanMcCormick.com for more information. GoldmanMcCormick.com.